Well, it's good to be back with you this morning. I'm very thankful for this church and your faithfulness. Uh, if you will, turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the third Psalm, Psalm 3. And we're going to look at the whole of this Psalm, Psalm chapter 3 and verses 1 through 8. This is God's holy Word. A Psalm of David. When he fled from Absalom, his son, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this word that you have brought to us this morning. We ask, O Lord, that you would speak to our hearts from the third psalm, that you would encourage us, O Lord, as many of us are enduring trial. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us by your Holy Spirit, by the preaching of your word this morning. I pray that Jesus Christ would be magnified, that he would be held out as he is freely offered to us in the gospel. We pray all this in his name. Amen. Well, my father always told me stories when I was little of hog hunting uh, in Joyce Kilmer National Forest in Robbinsville, North Carolina. Perhaps you've been there or heard of it. Uh, But what not only intrigued me, not just the hog hunting, I do enjoy hunting, but was the trees of this forest. They're huge trees. Maybe you have seen them. They've never been cut in their lifespan. Uh, They're humongous, as I said. And actually, they're in such a rich environment. Uh, It's sort of a moist environment so that the the soil uh, is rich. It provides healthy ground uh, that though they may be often assailed by storm and season, they don't topple. Rarely do they topple, but they grow stronger over time. They remain steadfast in the midst of the elements. And so it is with the believer who makes the Lord his trust. Though all hell would come against the believer through many trials, sorrows, and crosses to bear in this life, because the Lord is the stream, that healthy ground of the believer's trust He shall not be felled in times of adversity. As you'll notice in the third psalm, it begins with the superscript, a psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. And so this psalm, which we believe to be authored by David, as it says here, it sets forth David as an actual example of a redeemed sinner, a believer like you and me who has been made to trust the Lord through the ups and downs 
of his earthly life. And again, in this very situation, that's the very thing that we see. The believer's trust in the midst of adversity. The believer's trust in the midst of adversity. If you remember the context of Psalm 3, it's a time toward the end of King David's life when his own son, Absalom, rebels against his father's rule after a horrible string of sins. I think we could rightly say that this trial is one of the greatest trials in the life of David. It's one thing for a father to bear the pain of his own son going astray, how much more his son leading a nationally scaled revolt against him. Scripture tells us that it's not just some coup that could be swiftly put down. It's not just like a child's temper tantrum or a small discipline issue, but it's a monumental occasion toward the end of King David's life and his reign. We know uh, that Absalom uh, was a handsome man. He was a charismatic man, and he surely knew it himself, uh, as often the wicked do. And all the kingdom followed him because of it. Yet David, the man after God's own heart, the godly man, the right man, his forces have begun to disappear. As often it is in the world, the wicked are many and the righteous are few. Absalom at this time had led so many hearts astray that we could rightly say David has as many enemies in his kingdom as he has subjects. They've all turned against him. The adversity had become so great that King David, in the context of this psalm, Psalm 3, has fled into the wilderness from the bloodthirsty pursuit of his enemies. So he pins this psalm in the wilderness. But how about you in your own life? Has anyone ever really wronged you, maliciously come after you, uttered all kinds of falsities against you. Maybe even it was a family member, like in the context of the third psalm. You may not have been driven out of your kingdom by any means, but surely you've known adversity. The discouragement and pains of life in the world. I'd ask you this morning, what's, what's your reaction in those times? Do you respond with anger or perhaps by becoming frustrated with your circumstances while others prosper? Do you envy those prospering? Certainly those are temptations for us, yet that's not the example we see of the believer in Psalm 3. No, David, the suffering believer resists those temptations even as his life is in shambles. Rather, he is convinced that just like the Lord rescued him out of the depths of his great sin with Bathsheba, so the Lord will rescue him now from his foes. Just as the Lord caused him to triumph over the lion, and over the bear, and over the Philistine Goliath, and delivered him out of the hand of Saul, 
So now the Lord will deliver him from his foes. And that's what I want to set forward to you this morning from the third psalm. It's three simple truths. Three simple truths for our trust in the midst of adversity. So we see here, firstly, in verses 1 through 4, the Lord answers. The Lord answers. Secondly, we see in verses 5 through 6, we see the Lord upholds. And thirdly, we see the Lord saves. The Lord saves. Look with me first, though, at verses 1 through 2. David says, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Well, each of us here in the mountains, I'm sure, have uh, encountered a good snow. We've experienced a good snow. And we know that when you push a snowball down a hill, what does it do? It gets bigger and bigger as it rolls. It picks up more and more snow. And that's exactly how David here describes those coming after him, his enemies. They started with a snowball, yet they've become an avalanche. The plot began with Absalom, David's son, and as it gets nearer and nearer to David, towards the bottom of the hill, it's gaining and gaining, so that eventually an entire army is against David. And so it often is with us. Perhaps you feel that way this morning. Things were going great in your life, and then they weren't. You've gotten one phone call and your world slowly unravels. The trials never seem to come alone, but they come in flocks. These first two verses of Psalm 3, we might describe as David's lament, his cry for help before God. Like uh, our initial prayers, we often pray when the trial hits. They're David's expression of need because David knows, as any of us would, that there is no way that a single man could possibly stand before an army. Every wise believer knows that without the bolstering of the Spirit of God, we will crumble in times of trial. David knows that though it's been said of him, David has slain his Ten thousands that he never stood before his enemies, whether Philistine or beast, without the grace that only God can provide. But I think what this verse would chiefly have us do is to notice the particular reason why this foe that David now faces is so different. So much more formidable to him than all the rest of those foes he's faced. It's not because they seek to murder him or because they're mighty in number, but because they mock him. They're mocking David. The foe is using a tactic of Satan himself questioning his very source of hope for deliverance. They even throw David's own previous sins in his face, calling him a man of blood. 
for his murder of Uriah the Hittite, which David has already repented of before God. They're wanting him to doubt that even God himself could save a man such as him. As we saw in verse 2, they're saying to him, surely there is no salvation for him in God. There's no hope for you, David, you man of blood. Some have said truly the greatest affliction a Christian can endure is to be led to believe that there's no hope for them in God. There's no lie more detrimental that you could believe this morning than to believing that the Lord is unable to save you. It's blasphemous. Banish those thoughts from your mind. But this foe of David is not just threatening to destroy his body. They're questioning his assurance, that which is most precious to him, the thing that all his hope hangs upon, his sure salvation and God, his Redeemer. It's as if his enemies have set him up on trial as his accusers and new witnesses are continuing to pop up, to take the stand, even his own friends his own son, to accuse, to point their finger at him, to break him, to cut off the Lord's own anointed king from his throne, to make him feel as if the world was against him. Not just to depose him, to kick him out of his throne, but to cast him all the way down into a state of utter humiliation. But brothers and sisters, wasn't it even more so with the Lord Jesus Christ? Charles Haddon Spurgeon wrote that the third psalm contains far more of David's Lord than even David himself. If ever David was a type of Christ, he was here in the third psalm in his suffering most of all. And in concurrence with this passage, 2 Samuel 15.30 tells us that when David was forced to flee Jerusalem, he made one final stop. And it's most likely in that place where he penned the very words, the prayer of this psalm. It was the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives. He ascended the Mount of Olives to pray, weeping as he went barefoot with his head covered in despair. Never was David more a type of Christ when he drank such a bitter cup of suffering. Never more like our Lord when he tasted the betrayal of those closest to him, when his own kingship was mocked. And he was made an outcast. As Christ says of himself, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the son of man has no place to lay his head. Almost 500 years 
after David, the incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, ascended that very same mountaintop to pray to the Father as so many things weighed upon his mind. Just think of the things that tormented King David, the perilous nature of his situation. He was running for his life. But then think of that which burdened the Savior as he prayed and reflected on what was to come, as he sweat like drops of blood. What David complains of in the opening of Psalm 3, my foes have risen against me, that many have said of him, there was no hope for him in God. The Lord Jesus Christ knew even to the deepest degree. He knew the betrayal of his closest friends. Jesus was burdened not only with the sin of David, but with the sin of all the elect. The weight of the sin of all the elect. He was convicted in a sham trial. They scourged him as they said of him similarly to David. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires His own people trampled underfoot the Son of God, rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. And contrary to King David, the only crown that the true Davidic king, the king of heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ ever wore, was a crown of thorns pressed tightly upon his scalp enough to shred it. And he received it all in silence and submission. He chose to come to live among and to die for the very ones who would crucify him. The king of glory, the rightful king, the greater Davidic king, willingly left his heavenly throne and came and suffered humiliation and death upon a cross in the way of a common thief that his people, his subjects, would be saved. He who knew no sin was made to be sin, so that in him we are made the righteousness of God. We might become the righteousness of God in him. And let me tell you this morning, there is never a time when a Christian can't pray knowing that the one interceding for for them in heaven has been touched with the feeling of their infirmities, who ministers as one with the deepest experience. Yet Christ didn't just know the pain of physical suffering, but he knew and received the wrath due for our sins. When he said in his prayer in the garden, Father, if possible, Let this cup pass from me. It wasn't just that he'd be cut off from his rightful place, his throne physically, like David has been in the third Psalm. But it was the fact that he would be utterly cut off from the Father upon the cross and subjected to the full terror of the wrath of Almighty God. And it's only because Christ went to the cross because he cried my god my god why hast thou forsaken me 
only because he willingly stayed there upon the cross that there is salvation for David and for us in God. You and I know that if we were judged according to our merit, we would rightly be called men and women of blood. Our sins would be upon us. Yet because of Christ, we are called righteous. By his stripes, we are healed. And further, as in the case of adversity like David, it's only because Christ was forsaken by the Father upon the cross, was made to be sin that we are not when we pray for help in times of need. It's only because of Christ that David can expect and receive an answer to his prayer from God in the midst of turmoil. You all know David's history. The last few times I was here, we looked at Psalm 51. Indeed, David was a great sinner. You know his past. It's indirectly because of his poor parenting that he's in this situation in the first place with his son, Absalom. And maybe you're in a similar situation this morning, one caused by your own sin and you're in need of repentance. But yet, as we see in the third psalm, God is merciful. God is merciful. God answers our prayers just like David's in times of need, in the name and for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ alone, who has reconciled us to God. And though David didn't see it in the same light that we do, it's evident that David knows in the third Psalm that both spiritual and physical deliverance are all of God, because that's exactly what we read of in the next verse. His confidence that God will yet again answer his plea. He says in verse 3, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter up of mine head. Though it's tempting to crumble, to doubt, to hang one's head in shame, David responds with confidence and trust because of his God, his deliverer, and his impenetrable shield. He's saying, though I am weak, though an army encamps against me, you, O Lord, will surely deliver me. The Christian upon the foundation of God alone is able to stare his enemies in the face to even take joy in trial, because to abound in suffering is to be like our Savior. One of the early church fathers, Polycarp of Smyrna, a disciple of the Apostle John, is one who would be burned at the stake in a Roman Colosseum, wrote, Chains are the only diadems of this world fit for the elect. And I might add to that that those chains would only bind us closer to our Savior, that they would only pull us closer to him. 
that because of this, the tribulations, the trials of this present time aren't worthy to be compared with the glory that is to come. David knows in the midst of the pursuit of his enemies that in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And that is the believer's hope in the midst of trials. That is our hope this morning. But David even goes on to speak of the Lord as his shield, a tool of warfare, of defense. And when we think of a shield, most of us picture it as one carried on the arm of a knight or a Roman legionnaire. It's sort of a small circular one carried on the arm. But that's not what David is talking about here. David says the Lord is a shield about him. All around him. It's more like a comparison to armor which covers the soldier's entire body. It has no holes. It has no weak spots. No place for the enemy's arrows to pierce. It covers him inside and out. It could even be possible he's thinking of a valley surrounded by mountains like here in western North Carolina. Or it's protected by a perimeter, a perimeter of mountains protected from military attack on all front. That's as the Lord is to his people, a surrounding shield. The Christian in adversity can confess along with David elsewhere in the Psalms. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war should arise against me, in this I will be confident that the Lord is our light and our salvation. Not only does David take comfort in the fact that God's people will be protected as with a shield all about from the enemy's physical advance, but he says, the Lord is my glory and the lifter up of mine head. A protector of David's dignity as king, and even his mental state. It would be tempting for David in the midst of this horrible situation to dwell on the obstacles that are in front of him, to think in his mind that people are big, but God is small. To complain about the bad hand that he's received, that he's been dealt That his life would be perfect if he could just get out of these circumstances that he's in. If this situation had never come to pass in his life. But instead of David doubting the Lord's goodness to him, when things aren't going his way, he calls to mind that the Lord has answered him on high before. He's seen the Lord do it before. In the fallout of his own sin, the Lord heard And answered, and surely he will come and he will answer again, for he knows that the Lord changes not. In him there is no shadow of turning. Instead of dwelling on what's before him or hanging his head in defeat, he's confessing one of our favorite verses to quote. I will lift mine eyes unto the hills. From whence comes my help? My help cometh from the Lord who made heaven and 
earth. He will not allow my foot to be moved. He does not slumber, nor does he sleep. Rather than fixing his eyes on what's in front of him, they're upon the heavens, focused upon his God, who is his very help. To David, God's answering is even more sure than the enemy's advance who's right in front of him. God's answering is more sure. And then what we see in verse 4, he says, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Church, the Lord is an answering The Lord is an answering God. You can trust the Lord in the midst of the trials that you're going through because he is sure to answer our prayers. He doesn't always answer them according to our timeline, as you know. He doesn't always answer them as as we want. But nevertheless, he always answers his saints. I can't tell you why you're going through what you're going through this morning, why you've received that news from the doctor that you have, or why your job isn't going well. But what I can tell you is that the Lord is not a man that he should betray or hurt, but God's purpose is always holy, it is always righteous, and it is always good. He is faithful. For he forsaketh not his saints, that he uses our suffering to refine our very faith. And not only does the Lord answer in adversity, but our second truth is the Lord upholds. The Lord upholds. David says, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Every one of us here this morning, I'm sure, has had a sleepless night because we were so worried, so anxious about what might be going on in our lives the next day, the the next week. Maybe something with work or a medical test or surgery. Yet David here is saying, while he was on the run from those armed to the teeth, those after him, he had the best night's sleep of his entire life. General Thomas Stonewall Jackson similarly said, I feel as safe on the battlefield as I feel in bed. It wasn't because there was no threat of death in battle, but because every morning his candle-lit tent portrayed the shadow of a man kneeling before the Lord in prayer. It was recorded of him that he never lifted a glass of water to his lips without sending a prayer up to the Lord. And in the same way we see here in the end of verse 5 that David The believer has awakened from his night's sleep, ready to face the troubles of the day. And there's no other explanation for a good night's sleep in the midst of this kind of turmoil, except for exactly what David says, which is the Lord sustained me. The Lord sustained me. A saint who prays, who lays his or her worries and concerns at the foot of the throne of grace, 
has access to what only God can offer to an anxious spirit. The peace of God, which passeth all understanding. The sustaining grace of God in the midst of battle, whether physical or spiritual. And it's not a peace like the rest of the world would try to get us to pursue, encourage us to pursue, where our minds can be empty of all troubles as a Buddhist monk of sorts. It's not one of abandoning all our responsibilities because of the stress, but it's one which wholly acknowledges the gravity of our situation, yet stumbles not because of the far-surpassing power of God to uphold saints, that there's nothing that would assail us outside the sovereign control of Almighty God, that we serve a God who has ordained whatsoever comes to pass. Not a hair shall fall from our heads, lest the Lord say so. And we see in verse 6, though many thousands, tens of thousands set themselves about David, He will not fear, for his God is with him. There's no soldier of Absalom that can counter the mighty sword and shield of the divine warrior, Jehovah. It might seem to the enemy that there's no way David could escape from their encroachment, but David knows that the Lord will smite the wicked, that surely they will pass away like the grass and wither is the green herb. He's sure to uphold his saints who trust in him, who plant their roots by the stream of their God. So not only does the Lord answer and uphold in times of adversity, but the Lord saves. It's our final truth for trust in the third song. The Lord saves. David exclaims in verse 7, Arise, O Lord, Save me, oh my God. The Lord is so much more powerful than all those against David that all the Lord has to do is arise, stand up, and the enemy will be turned back. That even a finger lift on the part of God, even a word from the Lord is enough to crush all David's and our enemies. Our Westminster Shorter Catechism even makes the point of our king. Jesus Christ, how doth Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executeth the office of a king in subduing us to himself and ruling and defending us and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Those who would make themselves to be the enemies of God's people would make themselves to be the enemies of the Lord himself. As David says here, For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. You remember in the beginning of our psalm, David cried out to the Lord that the enemy had risen up against him to utterly humiliate him. But as we see here, the tables have completely turned. The wicked have fallen into their own trap. The destructors, the destroyers, the humiliators have become the destructed and the humiliated. 
David knows that the Lord will smite them so that they're as a wild beast stricken on the cheek by their master. David knows it's not his job to exact vengeance upon his enemies. He knows that though our enemies seek to sink their teeth into us, God will smash their teeth, rendering them utterly incapable. And so it is with Satan. Though he would come after God's people with all kinds of evil, though he prowls around as a hungry, roaring lion, God will smash his teeth. Satan can only do to God's people what God allows him to do. God takes what the enemy means for evil and he turns it for our good. And further, Christ has already brought the greatest humiliation to Satan and all our foes and the greatest display of history in all the world, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as David's enemy Absalom and his army, Satan mistook a bruised heel for an ending, a scratch for a gushing wound, yet Christ has already shown himself to be the victorious king. He's victorious over our flesh, over the world, over the devil. Death has no hold upon him, but risen and ascended in glory, he ever lives to intercede for us before the Father in our time of need. He is sure to come back with trumpet sound and exact justice upon the evildoer, and we shall be raised just as he was. That though we abound in the sufferings of Jesus Christ now, so too shall we partake in the comfort. And finally, David says in verse 8, Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. It's in this last verse that we observe the sum of biblical doctrine, that salvation belongs to the Lord, that God is sovereign over all, including our salvation, just as David has no power against his enemies except the Lord intervenes, so a sinner has no power to save himself spiritually. Rather, as we know, human beings enter the world in such a spiritual deadness that though God has plainly revealed himself to them in all creation, they so suppress the truth and unrighteousness that without the work of the Spirit of God, dead they shall continue. The natural man has the puzzle pieces, per se, but not the ability to put them together. Like in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, Christian, the main character, is weighed down by his backpack, which is his burden of sin. And the only place he can be free of it is at the foot of the cross. And let me tell you alike this morning, there is nowhere to find salvation, to find deliverance, except at the foot of the cross. No way to endure trial this morning except by trusting in the Lord Almighty. For salvation belongs unto him. He is the only one 
who can give you rest for your soul, Christian pilgrim. But not only does this verse teach us that salvation, deliverance, is an act only of God, but more literally, we might render this phrase, the salvation is to or for God. Salvation is unto God, that God ultimately saves for himself. The Father sent the Son, the Son willingly came and purchased that people at the price of his own blood, and the Spirit makes the application of that redemption to that people. An act of the sovereign grace of God for the God of, for the glory of God, and that people he saves is for God. The people that God saves is for God, his treasured possession to dwell with him for eternity. And not only has he saved us and will he save us from our enemies and our own sin, but he's put his very blessing upon us. David says in the end of verse 8, your blessing be upon your people. Your blessing be upon your people. Think about that as you receive the benediction, the sending out with God's blessing when you leave his gathering on the Lord's day. That in the midst of the trials that you're going through, you can call to mind, the Lord has blessed me and will keep me. The Lord has made his face to shine upon me and has been gracious to me. The Lord has lifted his countenance upon me and the Lord has given to me peace. That though all kinds of evil would come against you, that though you might be enduring one of the hardest trials of your life, like in the case of David, as a sinner saved by grace, God loves you and his blessing is upon you. Far greater it is than all else to live a life of suffering with the blessing of the God who saves And through that blessing, to receive a glimpse of that comfort and that rest that is to come. The comfort being in the presence of Almighty God. What could be better after a life of suffering than to hear your Savior call your very name and say, Well done, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make the ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Brothers and sisters, whatever you're going through this morning, whatever troubles you might be encountering, I would ask you, is your trust in the Lord? The things of this world cannot offer deliverance, and they cannot offer blessing. The idols of this world do not answer, but they remain Silent. The idols of this world do not sustain, but they themselves fade. And most certainly, the idols of this world cannot save. But only the Lord saves his people. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Only the Lord offers us the confidence, the surety in times a trial that we see in the third psalm. Trust in him, for he is sure to deliver 
and his blessing is upon his people. Amen. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we give to you all praise and glory, for you are worthy of it. Lord, you have saved a people for your glory. We give you thanks that if we put our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Redeemer, that we are counted among that people, that your blessing is upon us. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would encourage each and every one of us by your spirit, that we would meditate on the third psalm and see how you delivered David from his foes and know that you will surely deliver us. We give you thanks and we praise you and we pray all this in the precious and holy name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.